Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now, as we begin to look into the New Testament, our narrative today will come from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. We'll read that Paul was not merely revealing his feelings as he was speaking. He was defending his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was hurt that the church in Corinth doubted and questioned him. So he defended himself with the cause of the good news, not to satisfy his ego. When you are put on trial, so to speak, do you think only about saving your reputation, or are you more concerned about what people will think about Christ? Well, Paul explained that the only thing he did in the other churches that he didn't do in Corinth was to become a burden, to ask the believers to feed and house him. When he said, forgive me for this wrong, he was clearly being sarcastic. He actually did more for the Corinthians than for any other church, but they still misunderstood him. Paul had founded the church in Corinth on his first visit there. He subsequently made a second visit. He was planning what would be his third visit. Paul explained that, as before, he didn't want to be paid, fed, or housed. He only wanted the believers to be nourished with the spiritual food that he would feed them. Now, although Paul asked nothing of the Corinthian believers... Some doubters were still saying that Paul must have been sneaky and made money from them somehow. But Paul again explained that everything he did for the believers was for their edification, not to enrich himself. Well, now let's read all about it here in the New Testament. September 12th, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. You Corinthians have made me, Paul, act like a fool, boasting like this. You ought to be writing commendations for me, for I am not at all inferior to these super-apostles, even though I am nothing at all. When I was with you, I certainly gave you proof that I am an apostle, for I patiently did many signs and wonders and miracles among you. The only thing I failed to do, which I do in the other churches— was to become a financial burden to you. Please forgive me for this wrong. Now I am coming to you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you. I don't want what you have. I want you. After all, children don't provide for their parents. Rather, parents provide for their children. I will gladly spend myself and all I have for you, even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. Some of you admit I was not a burden to you, but others still think I was sneaky and took advantage of you by trickery. But how did any of the men I sent to you take advantage of you? When I urged Titus to visit you and sent our other brother with him, did Titus take advantage of you? No, for we have the same spirit and walk in each other's steps, doing things the same way. Perhaps you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves. No. We tell you this as Christ's servants, and with God as our witness. Everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. For I am afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response. I am afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Yes, I am afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence. And I will be grieved, because many of you have not given up your old sins. 
you have not repented of your impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. And now, here in the book of Psalms, our reading comes from Psalm 56, verses 1 through 13. Even in our deepest sorrow, God cares. Jesus reminded us further of how much God understands us. Even the hairs on our head are all numbered. Often we waver between faith and fear. When you feel so discouraged that you're sure no one understands, remember that God knows every problem and sees every tear. At times, we may be surrounded by people who gossip about us or criticize us. Verbal cruelty can damage us as badly as physical abuse. Rather than answering with hateful words, we, like David, can talk with God about the problem. As we read further into the psalm for today, we'll see that David's firm faith in God contrasted sharply with his enemies' loud lying and boasting. When confronted with verbal attacks, the best defense is simply to be quiet and praise God, realizing that our confidence is in His love and faithfulness. In times of suffering, don't turn inward to self-pity or outward to revenge, but turn upward to God. Psalm 56, verses 1 through 13. For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time the Philistines seized him at Gath, to be sung to the tune, Dove on Distant Oaks. O God, have mercy on me, for people are hounding me. My foes attack me all day long. I am constantly hounded by those who slander me, and many are boldly attacking me. But when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I praise God for what He has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? They are always twisting what I say. They spend their days plotting to harm me. They come together to spy on me, watching my every step, eager to kill me. Don't let them get away with their wickedness. In your anger, O God, bring them down. My enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know. God is on my side. I praise God for what He has promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what He has promised. I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? I will fulfill my vows to you, O God, and will offer a sacrifice of thanks for your help. For you have rescued me from death. You have kept my feet from slipping. So now I can walk in your presence, O God, in your life-giving light. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 6 through 8. Don't eat with people who are stingy. Don't desire their delicacies. They are always thinking about how much it costs. Eat and drink, they say, but they don't mean it. You will throw up what little you've eaten, and your compliments will be wasted. The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Good morning. You may be seated. Uh, the first thing I want to ask is, is there any kids sitting out here that didn't get a kid's packet? Anybody? Doug, Doug and Dan are raising their hands. Anybody else? Um, our kids, our kids um, volunteers that serve really well, they made 
They made some notes uh, for the kids this morning that you can kind of explain in greater detail later or just for them this morning. So uh, thanks thanks to Tiff and Lara and their team for doing that. This is something that we're going to do. Uh, like, you know, it's an experiment today, but our hope is to do it a couple couple times a year on the fifth Sunday. So that's that. Again, I hope you're well. I'm a little nervous, to be honest, because uh, in God's divine providence, um, I have to speak about obeying the governing authorities this morning. Um, that happened to fall. The, our text today happened to fall in the same week that the kids are all going to be in here. So... Um, Laura and Tiff asked me to give a condensed, shorter sermon regarding this text in uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7. So, uh, a text that honestly, if someone was to, you know, if handpick Bible verses to teach about, I wouldn't go to. Um, but again, when you, go through, uh, when you go through a book of the Bible or a section of the book of the Bible, this is just what happens. You know, so we're going to teach the whole council of scriptures and... Uh, and that's that. So if people start walking out mid-service, you'll know why, okay? They don't, you know, they aren't paying their taxes and they hate the government. So that's what's going on. So this is a sermon dedicated to the IRS. Um, uh, not really. Stupid jokes, I'm sorry. Um, so anyway, let's, uh, let's get to work. Again, we're going to be in Romans 13, 1 through 7. So I'll go ahead and read uh, this text. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword in vain... For he's the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in a subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom Honor is, oh, this is the word of the Lord. And now you get the, the weird jokes that I just said at the beginning. All right, so, so basically the first thing that we're going to unpack this morning is the idea that God is our highest authority. And so the first big idea is this idea that, that God is our highest authority. And, and I think the first thing that we need to realize is that we, that there's a massive anti-authority spirit, anti-authority kind of uh, feel in our culture today. Um, nobody wants to submit to anybody. Everybody questions everything. Nobody wants to listen to anyone. And so we have this predisposition to not trust anyone, right? And all the while, we've got this relationship, um, if that's what you could call it, with our governing authorities, that we don't necessarily have a choice. We don't necessarily get the opportunity to dictate how that operates. Now, although, you know, Yes, in some ways our government is corrupt and devious, I'm sure. But we have to realize, um, first of all, that this has been true for all men and women who attain such power and authority. But at least for now, we need to understand that if you compared our, our current climate, our um, you know, time in history, our governing authority, if you compared that to other um, 
authority structures, other countries, other civilizations, um, we would still have to say, at least for now, in regards to our liberty, in regards to our choices, that we're still pretty well off. Now, that being said, what makes this a difficult kind of society to live in um, is the fact that when someone says something's right or when someone says something's wrong, that statement is immediately questioned. That statement is immediately attacked. The moment someone says, this is the way things should be done, is the exact moment that someone else will attack that idea, and vice versa. So therefore, the first thing we need to do is realize that there is an ultimate authority. There's an ultimate authority, and it's not the government, okay? Ultimately, you and I, if we're Christians, we believe in an authority that supersedes the local authorities, that supersedes the federal authorities, and that is God. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. As Christians, we realize that there's a power above everything else. There's some, you know, there's someone we answer to beyond what anyone says or does, and that's God. And listen, God isn't whoever we want him to be. We don't have the luxury to kind of uh, come up with whatever kind of God fits our fancies or fits our predispositions or fits the things that we desire and we want. We believe that our God has revealed himself by the historic reality of Jesus Christ, but also by what the Bible says, right? And so today's text addresses an important constant relationship that all of us have and probably not many of us are too fond of, and that's the relationship between us and authority. We first need to understand that we'll never interact with the government in a healthy way if we don't first understand that our ultimate authority is God. We'll never interact with our government in a healthy way until we first relate to God in a healthy way. Tim Keller, in a sermon, recalls a study by Emil Durkheim, who wrote a book in the 50s. So, you know, it's a little, little dated, about 60-some-odd years ago. But this book was called Suicide. And, and he said, why is it that more teenagers commit suicide now? Far more. Uh, he, he said three to 400% more than 20 years ago. Again, this is in the 50s. But, but, but they saw this increase in adolescent suicide. And he studied, and he said that these sufferings, these 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 his thesis was that this was happening because of lawlessness or, or authoritylessness, if you will. His thesis was that young people that had no grasp on what was right or wrong, what was up or down, you know, which way is good or which way is bad, he believed that this was causing uh, young folks to commit suicide. And so the idea there is that people who have lost a firm grasp on reality, who live in a lawless way, eventually come to a place of ruin, of chaos, a life filled with confusion. And this makes some sense. Why? Because God was the first to come up with the idea of authority. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that God instituted human authority, and that's our next point. So the big next point is that the idea of earthly authority was initiated, was inaugurated, was who started that was God. And so you see it in the family. There are, there, there are all sorts of, of authority structures and institutions. Why? Because you and I can't live without authority. Keller says, 
So on the one hand, Christians understand that human authority is not something that gets in the way of freedom. Human authority properly understood, that's the key word, human authority properly understood creates freedom. And what's often said to define authority from what I've read and from what Keller says is that authority is a blend of legitimacy and power. That what defines Good authority is a blend of legitimacy and power. If you don't have legitimacy and power, you don't have rightful authority. So many will disagree. For example, um, an atheistic philosopher, he said, human authority, civil governments have only the authority that people give them. And God would say no. The Bible would say no. According to Rousseau, there is no overarching authority structure. There is none. Authority tells you what's good and what's wrong. And Rousseau believes that this is constructed by culture, meaning he doesn't believe there's an overarching authority structure, one that would supersede all the others. As Christians, we don't believe this. Why? Because we have to go back to our first point, because we ultimately do believe there's an overseeding, an overarching authority structure. And again, who is that? That's God. That's God. And our text today teaches that human authority is instituted by God. Now, Keller uses this example to explain the difference between legitimacy and authority. And this is a little heady, but I'll, I'll kind of unpack it a little bit afterwards, but try to follow along. So, so he, he says this. He says, when the Nazis came and they took over, say, to the Netherlands, and they said, you know, we have authority, people would say, ah, but it's not rightful authority or legitimacy. You don't have the right to come in here and burn and pillage and rape and destroy. You have power, but you don't have legitimacy. So what could the Nazis say? Well, they didn't say this. They weren't smart enough to say this. But what could they have said? Well, to anybody who believed Rousseau, to anybody who threw out the scriptures, to anybody who says, well, I don't know if there's a God or not. Human authority is just whatever the populace says it is. Then what they could say is, Whose values are you talking about? Who is to say what's right and wrong? Unless there is authority above human authority by which it's judged, unless there's an absolute moral standard higher than human authority, unless there's an authority behind that human authority, there's no difference between authority and authoritarianism. I didn't say that right, but whatever. There's no difference. Again, heady, but, but, but he goes on. What is to say what's right? What is to say what's wrong? As soon as you start to talk about legitimacy, as soon as you say this is bad, you're trampling on human rights. And this is bad government. You're assuming that there's some higher divine authority. You're shaking your fist at them in light of some higher judgment. If Rousseau is right, if the Bible is wrong, what everybody knows instinctively falls flat. And that is, there's a difference between rightful authority and and lawless authoritarianism. There's a distinction between tyranny and valid human authority. But if you don't believe what the Bible says, you have no basis for that gut feeling. You know it, but you have no basis for it in your own worldview. Again, heady. But what's he saying? The reason deep down in our guts that, that we know we know there's such thing as righteousness. We know there's such thing as goodness and there's such thing as bad, right? This is because we're all created as image bearers of God. We're made in God's image. 
Therefore, there are common graces that we all experience. No matter if someone is a Christian or not, there's something within the human being that says this is right and this is wrong. But without the Bible, though, there's no basis for that worldview. There's no basis for that conviction. So if we don't start with God, then the whole thing falls apart. Because we have no basis for our convictions. It all falls apart into, into the, the paradigm of subjective, I feel this and, I, and you feel that. There has to be a higher authority, and that authority is God. Now, our text for today, it doesn't give us information about when and if we can rebel against the government, but there are other places in, in the Bible where it says so. So, for example, in Acts 4, the authorities tell the disciples that they can't preach anymore. The authorities tell the disciples they can't preach anymore. And in this instance, the disciples say that they appeal to a higher authority, which in this case is God, right? So in effect, they're saying, in effect, what they're saying is there's a higher authority and that's God. Keller adds, therefore, here's what's so balanced about it. This is what's so wonderful about being a free servant. Christians, unlike the radical people, the radical individualists of the West, believe there's an authority behind human authority. So therefore, we respect the offices. We respect parents, even the bad ones, because we know what's behind them. We respect people in authority. There's a kind of loyalty we have. There's a kind of respect that we give. Our ethnic culture, our family traditions, popular opinion, expert opinion, 90% popular opinion means nothing to us because what we do is we look and say, is it biblical? I don't care if, and this is again Keller, I don't care if 99% of the people, I don't care if my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents thought this, I don't care if all expert opinion says this, is this what the Bible says? So in sum, and this is on the screen, one of the big ideas here is in sum, the Bible commands us to obey authority unless that authority would ask us to do something that the Bible explicitly forbids or to go against what the Bible teaches, right? So in the case of Acts 4, the local government was trying to hush the disciples from speaking about Jesus. Why did they refuse? Why did they refuse? Because remember the first point, ultimate authority is God's. And so when someone goes against God, God always trumps that. God always wins. The Bible always trumps whatever other authority structure exists. But in almost all other cases, we obey the authorities in which we find ourselves subject to. This is the command of the scripture. So again, if we look at verse 7 of our text today, it says this. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I just find it interesting that it starts out with very concrete examples and then it goes on to to respect and honor that also fits into this. And and, and the point behind that is we do this in worship to God. We do this in obedience to God. Now what I want to do is I want to add something else. I'm not going to add to the Bible, but I just want to add some more scriptures into this section of Romans. 
um, so that hopefully we can see the bigger picture of Jesus' character and Jesus' purpose. Because in this text, if we just read this text in and of itself, um, it's not going to be one where everybody shouts for joy. It's not going to be one in which uh, we tend to see the gospel shining forth. And so we need to see this. We need to see the last point that I think really gives fuel to Romans uh, 13, 1 through 7. We need to embody the posture of a servant, really inwardly. We need to embody the posture of a servant. And so if we look to Isaiah 26, 1 through 6, it says this, In that day, everyone in the land of Judah will sing this song. Our city is strong. We're surrounded by the walls of God's salvation. Open the gates to all who are righteous. Allow the faithful to enter. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. He humbles the proud and brings down the arrogant city. He brings it down to the dust. The the poor and depressed trample it underfoot, and the needy walk all over it. So why did I read this verse? Because I think we need to notice a, a bigger theme that we find in the Bible. And, and Isaiah, the prophet, he talks a lot about, you know, the city, the lofty city, the earthly city, and how as Christians, as Keller would put it, we're to be an alternate city within the city. We're to be an alternate community within the community. And, and another thing we need to address is that we have to understand that there will always be corruption amongst us. There will always be greed amongst us. There will always be evil amongst us. And again, Isaiah refers to an alternate city within the city, an alternate people within a people. So what are we to do? Are we to start a revolution and exterminate the bad people and the good people can stay? What we know is that this has happened. These things have happened in the name of God. But what we've learned is that these types of revolutions historically have usually worked for a small group of people for a short period of time. But eventually, when, when you start any sort of cleansing or revolution or whatever you want to call it, you end up doing evil things for what you deem to be a good cause. We're to be an alternate city, an alternate people. We don't provide solutions the same way the world gives solutions. We don't handle situations the same way the world handles situations. Keller says, you're an alternate city, which means everybody. You're not, you're not an alternate city if you simply come to a church service and get something out of it as an individual. It gives you inspiration and you go home. You're not an alternate city unless you're creating an alternate human society. And what Jesus is calling to is he's actually saying this social order needs to begin to be realized now amongst the members of the people who've been changed by my grace. Therefore, what this means is inside the community of Jesus, work should not be the exhausting thing that it is when it's self-creation, but the joyful thing it is when it's service. Inside the community of Jesus, people who outside can't get along at all, people of different races and classes and vocations, inside can. In the community of Jesus, we use sex, we use money, we use power on different bases. We are the alternate city. And Keller says, we're alt.city.org. We're the alternate city now. We're the strong city and the lofty city. That's what Jesus says you have to be. So the idea there is instead of good people, the good people are in and the bad people are out, we realize we're all sinners. 
And we work for the betterment of all people. Why? For the glory of God, for the fame of Christ. Our revolution doesn't consist of violence and picking up arms and, 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 the, and, the, and the thought of us against them, whoever they may be. Our revolution doesn't lead to selfish gain and self-interest. But we have to realize that in some sense, we, we are a part of a revolution. But it looks much different. And so who's gone before us? And this is what we've done the past few weeks. We have to remember who's gone before us. What did Jesus do? Well, we all know this, and I'm almost done. Jesus was Jewish, and the Jewish people of Jesus' time were oppressed by the Romans. They were ruled by Rome, and also they were surrounded by all these Gentiles or non-Jewish people, and, and the Jewish people considered the Gentiles sinners. And so the Jewish people were awaiting their Messiah. They were awaiting the prophecies of the Old Testament to come true. And they did. Jesus comes, born of a virgin, into the home of a carpenter, not a particularly well-to-do family. Jesus, the Son of God, lives his childhood and adolescent life in somewhat obscurity until he launched his ministry around the age of 30, picking some fishermen and some other pariahs, some guys you wouldn't normally pick to be on your, your uh, revolutionary dream team to change the world, right? not a best choice of individuals. And quickly, he begins to gain notoriety. He, he, because he, he, you know, people begin hearing about him and he begins performing miracles and standing up against the religious rulers and crowds upon crowds come to see him. Now, what's interesting? What's interesting about this? Well, if you notice, and if you noticed when we were going through the first half of Mark, he tells many of them not to tell anyone who he is. Why? Why didn't he want to be known? Surely it would be helpful if he became very popular. Surely if he went straight to the king himself, right? The ruler of Rome and performed miracles, he'd be seen as God. He'd he'd be worshiped. Surely we think that this would have been the obvious path for a true God, for a smart God. Why did Jesus tell people to stay quiet about him? Why did he tell them not to say anything? I, I mean, I think, and other, other theologians, um, they kind of speak into this, but I, I think it's because he knew it was going to happen. He knew the sinfulness of man. He knew the corrupt nature of man. And he knew that, that earthly power wasn't the way. It wasn't the path for God's redemptive plan. He knew that what the Jews wanted was to be freed from the tyranny of Romans. And, and they would just, you know, if he could imagine them crying out, Oh, Messiah, free us from these oppressive rulers. And he also knew that the, that the Jews wanted the pagan Gentile sinners to be eradicated because they weren't good enough. They weren't God's chosen. In this sense, the Jews didn't understand the gospel. And like us, Often we relate to the Jews and we don't understand the gospel. They didn't understand God's motivations because they thought since they were chosen, they were the good ones and everyone else was the bad ones. Everyone else deserved what was coming to them. So you can imagine in their own kind of psyche, they were saying things like, save us God, your chosen people, eradicate the others. And what we know is this doesn't follow the storyline of the gospel, of, of the Bible. This isn't the good news of Jesus. Jesus knew this wasn't the way. He knew that the way for him 
would be much harder and at much more expense to himself. Because if Jesus had done this, it would have helped a few people for a period of time, but it wouldn't have fixed our sin problem. It wouldn't have made us right before a holy God. So what did he do? He served. He loved. He gave of himself. He took the bloody road to Golgotha and gave up his life so that we could have life. On the cross, I'll tell you what he took. He took from us our sin and offered us his life. On the cross, he stepped between us and God, took God's wrath that we deserved, and now in Christ, God sees us as his sons and daughters if we put our faith in him. And what we have to understand, friends, is when we think about cities and governments and revolutions and change and freedom, is that God is an ultimate authority and ultimately the only way to true freedom, the only way um, to a life that's free from corruption, a culture void of greed, is to mirror the way of Christ, is to mirror the way of Jesus. I believe this is the ultimate revolution. This is a road no one else is taking, but it's a bloody road. And it's not other people's blood. It's Jesus' blood. And who knows, it might be your blood. It might be my blood. The way of Jesus is not the way that leads to self-glory, self-power, self-attainment, where the good are in and the bad are out. The way of Jesus is the way of love. The way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice. The way of, you know, this is the way of true justice, of true joy, of true peace. And so if you want to be a part of a real revolution, follow the way of Jesus. Live your life with God as your ultimate authority and you'll be able to live consistently. You'll be able to live an honorable life. And following, the line, following this text, submit to earthly authority and embody the posture of a free servant. Meaning what? You serve not because you have to, but because you get to. Because we're to be an alternate city within the city. We're to be a people who are in the city and for the city. Because this is the way of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace in our lives. I pray, God, um, I know this is a difficult text this morning and we all have authority issues and daddy issues and all kinds of stuff that we're dealing with. Um, And I just pray that, Lord, in light of the difficulty that we may be facing within this text, that, God, your grace, your truth would would penetrate through all of our false views of reality. Uh, my prayer for myself, my prayer for us, is that we would, we would come before you and surrender to give you our lives as living sacrifices. Saying, not my will, but your will, Lord. And the way is not going to be the way of, you know, taking over by force for our own gain, for our people, for our, you know, that's not the way of Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that we'd follow your example, that you'd receive glory in our lives. I pray for for people this morning that they would be encouraged by your love and that they would follow you maybe for the first time by putting their, their faith in you, by asking for forgiveness. We ask these things in your name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org. And that'll do it for today's podcast. Everyone have a safe and blessed weekend, and make sure to tune in next time to Transformation Radio.